By the prince of demons, he cast out demons, verse 23, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now you get here in Mark chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, one of the first uh, examples of a sandwich story. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark. And so Mark loves to do this. Um, he characteristically does this about six times in his Gospel. He'll start one story off, and then before he's done with it, he'll enter in another story. Uh, and then before he's done with that story, he'll close it with the story he started off with. You've got kind of bread slices and then meat in the middle. Um, you've got the bread slices and then the meat. Here are the bread slices. The outside of the sandwich are these stories about Jesus and his family, okay? Uh, so Jesus' family comes to grab him, comes to seize him. They think he's crazy. I think he's out of his mind. Uh, I'm not the first person whose parents have said they're out of their mind, and so I take comfort here that Jesus himself uh, goes through this. I'm, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Okay, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, so Jesus' parents come and uh, tell him that the, they want to seize him, tell him he's out of his mind. Um, you'll remember Jesus has been working on the Sabbath, breaking some Sabbath rules that the rule keepers did not want him to uh, break and so his parents maybe think he's crossed the line. They want to come and protect him. They come to grab him. Uh, he has been healing people and casting out demons um, and, and touching and, and reaching out to people that are outside of the boundaries that he's not supposed to be touching and reaching out to. Um, now his parents might be onto something because you see that scribes from Jerusalem have come to Galilee uh, to come and accuse him of certain things. This is bad news for Jesus. Um, we've seen Jesus. He's already been about as popular as he'll be in his ministry. People are coming from all over uh, to come and be healed by him, to come and listen to his messages. And now um, it'd be like a delegation from the White House coming. Um, the scribes from Jerusalem, the, the rule keepers, this is, these are the big guns. They come to Jesus and they accuse him of being in league with the satanic. Um, they call him um, Beelzebub, this uh, ancient demon, sometimes used as a synonym for Satan. Uh, and they say, the reason you're able to do these mighty works is because you're in with the dark powers. Um, you're in with these uh, satanic um, practices, and, and perhaps you're even yourself possessed by a demon. He exposes, as Jesus exposes the logic of their claims, uh, he says, look, if it's true that I'm possessed by a demon, that would mean that there's some like civil war breaking out in Satan's kingdom. Uh, among the evil kind of possession he has over the world. And if there's a civil war breaking out, it's going to fall. It doesn't make sense. Evil doesn't fight against evil. They team up on itself. He says, the logic doesn't hold here. Why would I be attacking my own people if I truly am of this um, uh, possession, if I truly am satanic and demonic? Um, you might be familiar, Abraham Lincoln uses this line um, during the Civil War. He says, a house divided against itself can't stand. They need to be on a united front. Um, then Jesus gives us this um, short, fleeting um, statement about what we call now the unforgivable sin, which is always interesting to think about and, and to talk about here. Um, Jesus says, 
Uh, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. I think it's easy to look over this statement because we get concerned about the one sin that won't be forgiven, the eternal sin. And we miss a pretty big statement here. Jesus, in, in one sentence, kind of gets rid of all guilt and debt here. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Everything will be forgiven. And he says, whoever blasphemes, they'll even be forgiven. Um, and this is, again, encouraging to theologians and apologists, preachers who talk a lot about God and probably get things wrong sometimes. Um, it'll be forgiven. It's all forgiven. He says, except for one sin. There's one sin, he says, that won't be forgiven. And here he calls it the blasphemy of the Spirit, to speak incorrectly about the Spirit. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this. Um, it's not the point of our message this morning, um, but we will talk about it for a couple minutes here. Um, the unforgivable sin here in Mark seems to be calling Jesus and his work satanic, um, blaspheming the Spirit. Um, saying what Jesus is doing by the power of the Spirit is actually something that's being done by the power of Satan, by the power of, of the demons. That, that Jesus and his ministry are demon-possessed, are demon-motivated. Um, it seems as if the logic here is that they have, the scribes have painted themselves into a corner that they're not going to be able to get out from. Um, once you have called black white, and once you have called white black, um, you're kind of unable to recover from that point. Um, so I can explain to you like this. Um, there was a story told of a man who was once uh, completely convinced that he was dead. Okay? Uh, he was convinced he was dead. He and his family, he told his family, he told his kids, told his wife, I'm dead. Um, and he was kind of freaking out about it, anxious about it. And his family and kids tried his very best to convince him, you're not dead. Okay? You're living, you're breathing, your heart's pounding, you're alive. But this guy had just con become convinced in his mind right, that he was dead. And so his family, in a last-ditch effort, took him to a counselor, took him to a psychiatrist. Uh, and that psychiatrist was trying to convince this guy that you're not really dead, you're alive. And so he finally came up with what he thought would be the ultimate proof to this man that he was alive. And he asked the man, do dead people bleed? And the guy said, no, that's silly. Of course, dead people don't bleed. And, and the counselor took out a little switchblade and cut his arm. And all of a sudden, he started bleeding. And the counselor's sitting there going, I've proved it to him, right? Dead people don't bleed. He's bleeding. Obviously, he's going to realize now that he's not dead. He's alive. But the guy instead goes, well, look at that. Dead people do bleed. <laughs> right? It's the, it's the power of a presupposition. Once this man had decided that he was dead, all the evidence was just proof to him uh, that, that he was dead, right? And even things that would normally contradict that belief now just reinforce that belief. He's just willing to learn new things about that. Um, Jesus seems to be saying that's the same thing that happens to people when they um, completely reject him and his ministry, when they blaspheme the Spirit. Um, even if Jesus were to do more powerful works, right, they would just reinforce their already held beliefs that he is working with the demons, he is working with Satan. Um, so theologians would, would say the unforgivable sin here um, becomes sort of circular in logic. Um, it's to completely and fully reject the work of Christ. Um, in, in an ultimate sense. It's not something that one can do casually. It's not something one can do on accident. And it's probably something that takes a lifetime to do. It's probably something that you die doing, that you die into. Um, N.T. Wright, a scholar, compares it to mistaking a doctor for a murderer. This kind of painting yourself back into a corner. He says, it's rather, the unforgivable sin is rather like if you decided firmly that the doctor who's offering to perform a life-saving operation on you is in fact a sadistic murderer. You will never give your consent to the operation. 
Um, and, and so it's, it's unforgivable in the sense that you'll never ask for forgiveness, right? You'll never recognize that this is indeed what Christ is doing in the world. This is who God has sent to rescue us and to save us. So Jesus gives this warning about um, blaspheming the spirit, about these scribes who are saying he's really working with the unclean spirits. And then we get to the back end of the sandwich, right? Back into the story with his family. Um, his mother and brothers are outside. They call into him, send him a message. Um, he doesn't notice. He doesn't even go out to meet with them. Um, he just says, who are my real mothers and my real brothers? They're the people who do the will of God. Um, now, two things I want us to focus in on here this morning. Um, first, in the middle of the sandwich, if you look at verse 27, Jesus gives a parable that I think is a very succinct and powerful summary of his ministry, of what he has come to do, his mission. Um, he says, no one, verse 27, if you're an underliner or a highlighter, this might be um, a, a verse you might want to underline. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And at first it's kind of strange. Jesus is giving us a lesson on CSI, breaking and entering, okay? Uh, he's giving you some advice here. If you want to go steal some stuff from somebody, you should probably tie the person up first, Okay. Find the strong man and then go plunder his goods. Um, what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing his ministry to this description. And it's a very powerful uh, analogy, I think. It's a very powerful parable. I think if we were really to grasp um, the, the, the weight behind this statement, it, it has the power to change really how we see Jesus, how we see his mission in the world, how we see him operating in the Gospels, and then what our mission might be as his disciples. Jesus here paints himself as the plunderer. As the thief. He's the divine thief performing this divine breaking and entering. Um, and he, he portrays the world as a house, a domain. There's this house that's currently under, he says, the power of the strong man, um, which he, he seems to be referring to here as Satan, okay? Um, the world is possessed, the world is enslaved. Indeed, in the Gospel of Mark, this is the world that you see. Jesus comes into a world full of demons full of murderous things, full of self-destructive things, full of people who are kind of out of control and out of their minds. Um, and Jesus comes and declares war. Jesus comes and says, I'm going to invade, I'm going to inaugurate a new reign, a new kingdom where people are free and people experience joy and life and peace and beauty and goodness. And Jesus says, what, what's happening here is you've got this world that has to date been under the power and influence of an evil one. That's now being freed. That's now being rescued. This world is being invaded. This is where we get our title for the series, Invasion of the Lamb. Jesus is coming and binding the strong man, plundering his goods. Scripturally, what, what seems to happen is when human beings sin and they rebel against God, there's this sense into which they sell themselves into slavery. Um, they sell themselves into slavery to, to evil, to sin, to death, to Satan himself. There's a sense in which, I mean, you see this really clearly. Just look at habits, how habits work, right? Um, when you make a decision, that decision usually ends up making you and shaping you. The more you make certain decisions, the more they end up shaping you to the point where you can very easily feel like you're controlled by an outside influence, right? Your decisions have become more than who you just are. Um, and indeed, I mean, even just logically, that seems to be the world that we live in. Um, we're, we live in a world full of evil. Uh, however you would want to describe it, however you would want to label it, satanic, demonic, um, just evil itself, self-destructive behaviors. Um, the story of human history is a story of you and I becoming more creative in how we can hurt each other than how we can hurt ourselves. I mean, it, it just really seems like something has gone wrong. There's this strong man who's owning over this house. Scripture, Paul will, will talk about sin and death in these personified terms over and over again. 
let's say sin rules over people. We seem to be controlled by sin. We seem to be controlled by death. We're enslaved to death in ways that we can't even realize. We've talked about this before here at the church, ways that we've maybe become enslaved to death, ways that maybe we try to ignore death and fight against death and, and, and be selfish and enjoy all that we can right now because we know that one day we're going to die. Um, death um, brings sin. Sin brings death, but death also brings sin. Our, our attempts to avoid death often um, bring sin into our lives. Um, but in this strong man's house, you have Jesus coming and binding him up. Um, this seems to be Jesus' ministry. He's an invader. He's coming in to invade, to break apart, and to free people who had been captive. Um, and so when Jesus shows up to someone who is demon-possessed or who is paralyzed or who is, um, has sins that have not been forgiven, who's excluded from the community, Jesus sees himself as someone who is freeing them from an evil that has held possession over them. He's bringing God's reign, God's rule into their lives. He is invading this current creation, enslaved as it is to evil, and bringing God's life and God's joy and God's beauty and God's peace. He's binding the strong man. Now, when we normally think of why Jesus came, what was Jesus' purpose? Why did he come? What was his mission? We normally are inclined to skip over his life and go straight to the cross and focus on the cross. Jesus came to die for our sins because we were sinners. We had this legal... Um, he raised again to prove that death no longer has power. He, he defeated death by dying, as we sang earlier. He's trampled death by death. Um, when Jesus comes just as a forgiveness for our sins, just as a payment for our sins, we also typically, Christians have a hard time um, explaining why and how we're called to live uh, morally right now, how we're called to live ethically right now. Um, it would be nice if we lived right right now, if we obeyed God's laws, those kind of things, but it's not necessary, right? God's already forgiven us. The payment has already been paid for our sins. But if you, if you think of Jesus and you think of his mission in terms of, again, coming and freeing people, coming and bringing the life that God has always intended for them, um, then that's not experienced outside of obedience. I mean, it's, it's in following Christ. It's in living the kind of life that he sets out for us in the Gospels that we find the salvation that he has come to give us. It's not something that we're waiting for. Salvation is not a, a rescue operation taking us off of earth into heaven. Salvation is bringing heaven to earth. It's bringing us life right here and right now where we are. I would suggest that maybe we should stop thinking about salvation and Jesus' mission as a rescue mission and think about it more in terms of an invasion. There's a big difference between a rescue and an invasion. Um, there are different strategies. There are different goals. There are different methods of operation. When you want to go rescue somebody, say the American troops want to go um, grab a prisoner of war over in another country. Um, a rescue mission, the stated goal is to get those who have been captured or held hostage and to get them out to a safe location, um, usually the closest safe location. You want to go in and you want to go out, and you want to be as secretive as possible about it. You want to engage as few enemy forces as possible. All that's necessary to get your hostage, get your victim, and take them out to a safe place. And again, sometimes that's how we think of Christianity. Jesus came, he died for our sins, then he left town as fast as he could, and one day we'll leave town as well after we die and go be with him in heaven. Um, think of it instead as an invasion, though. In an invasion, um, your goal is not to rescue people from a location to another location. It's to actually transform that location. Um, in an invasion, you don't avoid enemy forces. You actually are going to have to meet every enemy force at every turn and every juncture. 
so that you can transform what once was a land of terror or distress or despair into a land of joy, into a land of hope, into a land of beauty. This is what Christ has come to do. He's come to reclaim creation for God. He's come to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This is why Christians believe the scriptures say one day we're not going to escape to heaven. The whole world will be transformed. Death will be gone, sin will be gone, sickness will be gone, and you and I will be resurrected to live on a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus comes to invade. This is the invasion of the Lamb. Jesus comes to bind the strong man. This is what he's doing in his ministry. It starts with his temptation. You remember, as soon as Jesus is baptized, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and he has this one-on-one battle with Satan. He'll keep battling with Satan up to the cross, where Satan thinks he finally took out Jesus. He doesn't realize, though, that this was playing into Jesus' plan. Jesus attacks Satan. He attacks the enemy. He attacks evil in our world through this kind of selfless love that leads to the cross. Evil can't understand it. Evil is selfish. It's self-focused by nature. It doesn't understand the sense of self, self-othered love, the sense of selfless, selfless love um, that Jesus displays. But that ultimately is evil's undoing. Now, you've got the, the middle of the sandwich, right? This, this controversy over Jesus and his exorcisms. Um, and then outside of it, you have Jesus' family, the bread of the sandwich. And the, the reason Mark puts stories in this format, in the structure, is because he wants you to compare the stories together. He wants you to see what the stories might have to do with each other. Um, what's, what's happening here is Jesus' family, uh, as far as we know, don't follow him during his lifetime. Again, here at the beginning, they think he's crazy. They think he's out of his mind. Um, in a sense, you know, they're probably correct. Jesus is doing stuff that's going to lead to his death. They don't want to see him pegged by the authorities in Jerusalem. They don't want to see him dead on a cross. They know that's probably the trajectory that he's going. He is offending the wrong people through his ministry. Um, They come to grab him, and they do not understand what his mission is. They don't understand that he's come to invade. They don't understand that he's come to plunder the strong man. Um, But there are some who do understand Um, The scribes definitely don't understand. They are perhaps right to say that Jesus is possessed by something not human, but wrong to claim it's satanic. Jesus himself has been invaded by the Spirit. Remember, as baptism, the Spirit descends into Jesus. The Spirit leads Jesus out into his ministry. Um, Jesus is Spirit-empowered and Spirit-sent. And then again, his mothers and sisters uh, and brothers are standing outside the house. Notice there's some play on words here with the word house, okay? Um, You'll notice his family is outside of the house that Jesus is in. Jesus is inside the house with his disciples. Um, um, There are those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. At this point in Jesus' life, his family is on the outside. Um, There's no indication they followed him during his lifetime. We do know that one of Jesus' brothers becomes an early church leader um, in the church of Jerusalem after he resurrects from the dead. Here, though, they think he's crazy. They come, call to him. Notice this is, this is pretty revolutionary for a first century text and a first century Jewish man. Notice that Jesus doesn't go out to meet his family. He, in a sense, gives them a very cold shoulder. And what he does is he cuts the family line with them and draws a new line of family. And the new line is the church, the community of discipleship. He says, those who do the will of God. Now, in the first century, family for a Jewish person in a Jewish society is of utmost importance. As pro-family as we think we are as Americans, we're pretty pro-family, okay? Um, We're still nowhere near to a first century Jew. Um, For them, what you did as a living, who you knew, your personality, all of those things were determined exclusively by your uh, immediate family. 
They don't have this sense that we have where you can go be your own person, right, and go out and, and climb the ladder yourself. Um, and so the family was very important to these, these people. Jesus here, though, says there's something more important. There's a bond stronger than the family. Jesus is not the pro-family person we'd always like him to be. Here, he, he doesn't seem to be. Um, later in the Gospels, he'll say things like, if you don't hate your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters, you're not worthy to follow me. I went to Utah earlier this year. I went to kind of the Mecca of Mormonism. And I was struck by a few things as I got a tour of Temple Square and, and got to learn more about Mormonism. Uh, one of the things I was struck by was how pro-family Mormonism is. Um, a lot of their theology is based on the family. A lot of their eschatology, all of their beliefs about the future is based on the family. The family staying together, um, the family uh, living together, the family receiving benefits together. It's very, very, very pro-family. And it really is what would happen if you took the American dream and combined it with Christianity. I think you see those two streams merge very clearly into to Mormonism. This kind of very Americanized uh, Christianity where the family is, is almost above everything else. I mean, it's God and it's family. In the scriptures, though, um, there's a kind of relativizing of the family unit. And it's replaced by the church family. It's replaced by the community of people who are disciples, who have been invaded by the invader lamb. Jesus not only comes into this world to invade, he's also already here invaded the hearts and minds and lives of a few key individuals. He's called the twelve to follow him. It's these 12, he says, who are his true family. It's something we try to, to build up and emphasize here at First Colony Christian Church, that, that you and I um, are a, a family together, that the church, those who believe in Christ, are a family unit together. And that bond should be, when it's working properly, even stronger than our blood family bonds. In the same way that, that your family, when a family member is hurting, when a family member is struggling, you stop what you're doing and you make sacrifices for them. In just that same way, um, you are called to, to take care of the people in your church family. You are called to um, be responsible for other Christians uh, around you. Jesus says it's the community of discipleship, those who do the will of God, who are his brothers and his sisters and his mothers. This is a revolutionary statement. Um, this should change the way we think about church. This should change the way we think about our relationships. Um, Jesus breaks the family tie here and builds the church, uh, church tie. And it's around, notice it's around his mission. It's around doing his will. Um, his will is to transform his world back into what it's supposed to be. Um, you and I, as disciples, are called to do this. We're called to be invaded by Christ, to have our hearts and our minds captivated by him, transformed by him. We're called to let him free us out of the slavery that we find ourselves in, in, in different situations, in different circumstances, in different events. Um, and then we're called to join him on his mission, uh, to go out into the world, and where there's darkness, to push it back, and where there's hate, to replace it with love, and where there's death, to bring life, and to do all of that with selfless love, to do all of that with the cross-shaped kind of love that Jesus taught us how to live with. And so this morning as we worship, and this morning as we come to the table, I invite you to um, think about your life, think about the areas in your life where perhaps you um, need freedom, where perhaps you need the invader Jesus to come and break you out of some strongholds in your life. I, I pray that you would think about ways that you might be able to join Jesus on his mission. Um, people around you, people you know, situations you know, places where you can bring life, where you can bring light, um, where you can bring hope. And as we come to the table, as we worship the one who has come to bind the strong man and plunder his goods, we, we sing him praises uh, and give him all the glory. Will you pray with me?
Father, we thank you for... Uh,